Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to welcome you all to the Bangladesh at 50 conference. Looking back, looking forward. My name is Chelsea Farrell, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The Institute engages in interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues in South Asia and its relationship with the world. The Mittal Institute acts as a platform for South Asia-related activities and research across the various schools and departments at Harvard. As part of this mission, we run many different programs, including student and faculty grants programs, a semester seminar series, programs for visiting scholars and fellows, and workshops and conferences such as this one. The Mittal Institute has a long tradition of working in Bangladesh and has sponsored several scholars and artists from the region to come to Harvard. We have held a number of events over the years on topics related to Bangladeshi current and historical issues and have participated in events and hosted conferences in Bangladesh. We are so grateful to many of our Bangladeshi supporters, among them Rajiv and Nadia Samdani, the Cotter family, Professor Ruhul Abed, Associate Professor of Brown University's Medical School, and Professor Kashik Basu, Professor of International Studies at Cornell University. We would also like to thank BRAC and BRAC University for their, their collaboration with the Institute on a number of events, both at Harvard and in Dhaka. During the breaks between panels today, we will share works of two Bangladeshi artists who were selected as fellows through the Mittal Institute's Visiting Artist Fellows Program. Through a competitive process, the program offers fellowships to four mid-career artists from across South Asia and invites them to Harvard's campus for two months. Artists use this time to engage with Harvard faculty and students in the classroom and to showcase their work through a public talk and an exhibition. The program allows the Harvard community to engage with artists of diverse backgrounds whose work in various mediums addresses social, economic, and political issues in South Asia. On behalf of the Institute, I would like to thank all of those who have made this conference possible, especially the two professors who have co-organized this conference, Professor Marty Chen, lecturer on public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Professor Richard Cash, senior lecturer on global health at the Harvard T. Chan School of Public Health. Without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Tarin Khanna, Jorge Paolo Lehman Professor at the Harvard Business School and Faculty Director of the Mittal Institute. Thank you. Uh, great. Uh, thank you, Chelsea. Um, good morning and good evening and good afternoon, depending on where you are in this Zoom world. Uh, welcome to this uh, Bangladesh conference. We're very, very extremely pleased to have you. Um, as Chelsea mentioned, um, uh, at the Mittal Institute, we uh, focus very much on doing uh, work that's relevant to all the countries of South Asia uh, and are, of course, very interested in comparative work across the different countries and uh, uh, are really pleased to have this opportunity led by my colleagues, uh, Marty and uh, Richard, to deepen our engagement with Bangladesh. And let me add my thanks to all the scholars from Bangladesh, as well as from the U.S. and elsewhere who are participating in this. We're very grateful for your uh, support in building this. Um, you know, as befits the um, Mittal Institute, what you'll see in all these panels is incredible diversity uh, of topical area. Uh, the one area that's underrepresented that I would have liked to see some more on is science. Uh, but of course, that's a problem with most developing countries. We don't have enough scientific advancement going on, and it's a focus of the Institute is to try and uh, uh, nurture that along. But you'll see ample representation of civil society, social sciences, uh, politics, history, uh, the arts, um, things that Bangladesh is rightly celebrated for. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to learn from my colleagues. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to people who actually know much more, uh, infinitely more about Bangladesh than I do, 
not least uh, Marty and Richard. So let me uh, formally introduce uh, my colleague, uh, Martha Chen, Marty Chen, which is how we know her, um, is a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, co-founder and senior advisor of WeGo, which is a global network, women in informal employment, global and globalizing and organizing. Uh, Marty, I didn't know the full name of WeGo. I just know you <laughs> as doing WeGo. So <laughs> it's good to know. I knew it had to do with informal work. So it's, it's see, I already learned something um, uh, from, this, uh, from this event. Uh, but most importantly, Marty has been uh, a regular cheerleader uh, for us to continue to engage with uh, with Bangladesh uh, and, of course, with India, both countries in which you spent some time. So thank you, Marty, and thank you, Richard, for organizing this, and I'll hand off to you. Thanks, Tarun, and thanks to the Mittal uh, South Asia Institute for hosting this conference, and welcome. I want to join Kelsey and Tarun in welcoming all of you to this event. Uh, Richard Cash of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and I were honored to be asked to help organize this conference given our long association with Bangladesh, dating back over 50 years to the East Pakistan era, just before the War of Liberation. And we are so pleased that over 500 persons have registered for the conference. And we are very excited by the lineup of speakers and moderators. The, con the conference will feature five panels on different aspects of Bangladesh's development over the past 50 years and conclude with a panel on the future of Bangladesh. There will be three panels on each of the two half days of the conference. Today features the panels on political development, economic development, and human development in Bangladesh. And tomorrow features the panels on women's empowerment, the role of civil society, and the future of Bangladesh. We sincerely hope you will join us both days. But if you miss one or more panels, the conference is being recorded and we will share a link of the recordings with all registered participants. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce the first panel on political development in Bangladesh. The moderator is Gary Bass, a Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. He is well known in Bangladesh for his book, The Blood Telegram, Nixon, Kissinger, and a Forgotten Genocide, which won several prestigious awards. The speakers in this panel, whom Gary will introduce, but who probably don't need an introduction, are Ronak Jahan, and Rahman Soban. So Gary, over to you to begin the conference. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm honored to be here. Um, I greatly appreciate this. Uh, and I wanted to send my sincere thanks to the Middle Institute, to Tarun Khanna, um, uh, as well as to Marty Chen, who's done such a wonderful job um, of bringing us all together, Chelsea Farrell, uh, Megan Siewek, everyone has done a wonderful job and I'm deeply honored to be here. Um, it's my privilege to introduce uh, Professor Ronak Jahan uh, and Professor Reman Soban. 
Uh, Professor Ronak Jahan is currently a distinguished fellow at the Center for Policy Dialogue in Bangladesh and has previously served as a professor of political science at Dhaka University and a senior research scholar and adjunct professor at Columbia University. She headed the women's programs at the International Labor Organization, the ILO, uh, and the UNAPDC in Kuala Lumpur. Her many publications include Pakistan, uh, Failure in National Integration, published by Columbia University Press, Bangladesh Politics, Problems and Issues, uh, published by the University Press, The Elusive Agenda, Mainstreaming Women in Development, published by Zed, uh, Bangladesh, Promise and Performance, again published by Zed Books, and Political Parties in Bangladesh, Challenges of Democratization, published by Pratoma. She received her PhD in political science um, from Harvard University. So this is a home homecoming for her. Uh, Professor Rahman Saban is chairman of the Center for, Poli for Policy Dialogue uh, in Bangladesh. He served as a professor of economics at Dhaka University, as a member of the Bangladesh Planning Commission, as director general of the Bangladesh Institute of Development Studies, uh, as the founder and executive chairman of CPD and executive director of the South Asia Center for Policy Studies. Uh, in 1981, he served as a member of the first caretaker government headed uh, by President Ahmed. He was actively associated with the Bangladesh nationalist movement in the 1960s um, and was uh, a member and was a participant uh, in the liberation struggle in 1971. He was a awarded the nation's highest civilian award for that. He has published extensively on subjects about the political economy of development, foreign aid, petropolitics, agrarian reform, regional cooperation in South Asia, democracy and governance. Uh, he, among his most recent publications, there are Challenging the, in, the Injustice of Poverty, published by Sage, uh, Untranquil, Untranquil Recollections, The Years of Fulfillment, also published by Sage. And the second volume of his memoirs, uh, Untranquil, Re Untranquil Recollections, Nation Building in Post-Liberation Bangladesh, will also be published uh, by Sage. Uh, my two distinguished pal panelists, who, by the way, are appearing in the same window, um, we have uh, Professor Jahan on the left and Professor Soban on the right. Um, my uh, these two distinguished panelists have proposed some guiding questions um, to to start their remarks. Um, they're going to speak. Then I'll ask a few uh, questions to them, uh, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions and answers from the audience. Uh, again, conducted as always these days through Zoom, uh, and I'll be moderating through that. So I wanted to start with a question to Professor Jahan about how a quarter century of nationalist struggle um, against Pakistan, how this shaped the founding principles of the Bangladesh stake, state, uh, and why and how did these principles succeed uh, in gaining popular support so quickly? And that's a, a question to Professor Jahan, please. Thank you very much, Gary, for your um, kind introduction. And thanks to Mittal Institute for organizing uh, this uh, uh, webinar. For me, who grew up in the 1950s and 60s when our nationalist struggle was also gaining momentum, 
who witnessed the historic events of March 1971 and who lived through our National Liberation War. It is a great moment of joy to be able to celebrate the golden jubilee of our independence. At the time of our independence, there were many doubts expressed, particularly by people outside of Bangladesh, about whether Bangladesh will survive as a state. That uh, there were fears that there would be bloodbath, there would be chaos. But surprisingly, within a few months, we became politically quite stable and uh, we started our journey as a parliamentary democracy and within a year we uh, formulated our constitution which adopted four fundamental principles of state which i would like to call as our founding principles and these four principles were nationalism uh, secularism democracy and socialism. So what I would like to uh, do is first uh, talk a little bit about how in 1972 in, the, in our constitution and also we ourselves conceptualized and viewed these four founding principles. And then I will turn to the uh, second uh, question that how did these four principles, founding principles, become uh, uh, acceptable or how a consensus was developed so quickly around these four founding principles in the 24 years of our nationalist uh, struggle. So let me first start uh, with our first um, principle, which is nationalism. In 1972, uh, in our constitution, uh, um, we were, um, nationalism was defined as Bengali nationalism. Uh, so that uh, the basis of our nationalism was our language, Bengali. But when I was reading through the debates in the Constituent um, Assembly and also uh, an interesting um, uh, uh, speech that was made by the father of the nation, Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, on 4th November 1972, when the Constitution was formally adopted. He said, yes, our nationalism is based on our language, but there are many nations where we have nations, uh, multi-language nations. So it is not just the language, but it is our common struggle for nationhood that has made Bingo our claim to a nation state uh, um, uh, accept, uh, recognized and supported by people. So he described it as a feeling. A nation is if a group feels that they are a nation and they are willing to struggle for it. So I found that interesting because generally we thought that the emphasis was just simply on language and not our long struggle uh, uh, for our nationhood. The second principle, um, founding principle was secularism. And again, uh, secularism, the way we uh, conceptualized it, uh, there are five aspects to it. One is 
equal rights of all religious groups. Second, that equal freedoms uh, to practice all religions. Third was uh, that there should not be any organization, political organization based on religion. On that basis, religion-based parties are prohibited in Bangladesh when we became independent. But I, uh, so our understanding was no violence on the basis of uh, or that no communal violence. But what I found most interesting in some of the speeches of the founding father was that he repeatedly talked about the responsibility of the majority community towards the minority community. That it is not simply enough that there would be equal rights and equal freedoms. But majority community has a responsibility to ensure that there is no uh, violence or, or no injustice done to people of the minority community. I think this is something that we often forget. The third uh, founding principle was democracy. And here our understanding and our constitution defines it more or less the all the elements of a liberal democracy, which means civil, political, and fundamental rights, free elections, uh, independence of the judiciary, freedom of media, parliamentary su supremacy, and so on. Again, what I found interesting in that speech of uh, Sheikh Mujib uh, of 4th November is that when he was introducing the four principles, he said, he acknowledged that in many liberal democracies, democracy serves to protect the interest of the elite and the powerful. So he said that what we would like to do uh, is to make sure that the elites don't capture democracy, that our democracy serves the interest of the marginalized and the excluded. And on that basis, he then defended our fourth principle, which is socialism. And two aspects of socialism was uh, emphasized. One is elimination of exploitation, and the second is the establishment of a more egalitarian society. Let me then turn to the second question, that how we built a consensus around these four um, founding principles in the 24 years of our nationalist struggle against Pakistan. Here, five issues which drove the Bengalis against the Pakistanis uh, during 24 years of uh, Pakistan. We started with the issue of language and culture. As you know, within a few months of establishment of Pakistan in February 1948, when uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan, came to Bangladesh, um, at that time, East Pakistan, and declared that only Urdu will be the state language of Pakistan. And then the students protested. And, and then from then on, the Bengali language movement started. In 1952, students shed blood uh, in that movement, and it gained momentum every year. And finally, in 1956, Pakistani rulers accepted that Bengali also will be a, recognized as one of the two state languages of Pakistan. But even though Bengali was recognized as a state language, the 
uh, struggle. Uh, there, there are constant attacks on Bengali language and culture. Pakistani rulers alleged always that Bengali was too much under Hindu influence. And Tagore songs, Rabindranath uh, Thakur's songs were banned in mid-60s in uh, uh, what was then East Pakistan. And so cultural activists from the beginning, all through 50s and 60s, they played a very important role uh, in um, uh, putting forward um, uh, in registering this assault on our language and culture and projecting Bengali uh, language and culture and popularizing it. The second issue that drove us against Pakistan was the issue of place of religion in politics. From the beginning, uh, Beng uh, Bengalis wanted uh, harmony, communal harmony, because there were almost 20% Hindus left in uh, what was then East Pakistan. So uh, Bengali political leaders of the opposition party, they always believed in coexistence of Beng Hindus and Muslims um, as equal citizens. And when Pakistan uh, declared itself as an Islamic Republic, then uh, Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujib, uh, who was then a member of the National Assembly, protested in uh, the National Assembly in Pakistan. And Bengalis also were in favor of uh, joint electorate, you know, uh, that Hindus and Muslims will be part of the same uh, electorate. In 1964, when there were communal riots that broke, uh, broke up, uh, that uh, uh, Bengali uh, politi opposition political leaders, they actively worked um, uh, to stop that riot. And this issue of religion was, of course, very closely linked to the issue of language, because um, all Bengali speakers, Hindu and Muslims, they were all supposed to be uh, part of the uh, common nationalist, uh, uh, the, the Bengali identity was emphasized over um, language. The third issue was um, autonomy. Again, from the beginning, um, the Bengali opposition political leaders, we emphasized regional autonomy for um, uh, what was in East Pakistan in 1950. There is a grand national convention where only two uh, subjects, foreign policy and um, defense, are supposed to be um, in the hands of the uh, central government. So this autonomy issue was another running issue, uh, which then we see in 1966 culminated in the famous Six Points Movement, which was the uh, movement that start, was started by uh, Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujib, which galvanized the whole nation. In six points, again, only two subjects were left in the hands of the uh, central government. And then we had the, uh, the issue was also one, was one of democracy because the Pakistani rulers were um, mostly Pakistan was ruled by civil, military, bureaucratic elites, and Bengalis have no place uh, in that. And repeatedly, there were denials of elections in 1954 when the opposition um, won the election in the provincial assembly. Then within 90 days, that was, uh, they were, uh, there was a central rule imposed and elections. Uh, the first election was in 1970. Uh, and the economy was the last, uh, issue where we had always thought that uh, resources were uh, 
taken away from what was in East Pakistan to the central government. Let me then conclude uh, on one final observation, and that is that all these uh, issues were uh, driving us uh, against the central government, uh, and they were and they were growing from 1947. But what is surprising that how in the final phase, um, uh, within a relatively short period of 69 to 70, uh, that uh, the whole nation was mobilized behind the nationalist struggle. And I will uh, just mention here that uh, uh, with a personal uh, story that when I went as a graduate student at Harvard in 65, then only the movement against uh, Ayub Khan, the martial law, uh, the ruler, uh, has just started. And when I came back to uh, for data collection in 68, everything on the surface looked very calm. All the political leaders were in jail. but. Within three years, when I was interviewing, everybody was saying, there's just too much. We cannot stay together. And then, of course, uh, well, uh, within two years after that, in 71, in March, when the election result, uh, uh, people spontaneously uh, rose up in resistance. So I think the question here is, uh, yes, it is true that uh, Bangabundu played a very critical role in mobilizing the whole nation. But I think we need to also ask, why was it so acceptable to the general population? That why did our peasants rose up spontaneously and took up arms when they never knew how to use arms to fight our nationalist struggle? I think this is a question that we need to explore further. Thank you very much. And now over to uh, Reman. And I know I spoke a bit longer, so Reman can speak a bit longer, and I will then speak, uh, shorten my intervention next time. Are you going to begin by posing any question no, to no. me? Do I take it no. up where you left off? Yes, I think you are supposed to speak now. All right. Well, uh, according to our division of labor, uh, Rona gets to say all the positive things. And it comes over to me to see how the uh, tradition of the founding principles was really carried over in practice in the process of both nation building and nation unbuilding to the extent that that element came into play. Because as with all narratives of post-colonial societies, uh, what you essentially dream about uh, in many ways works very well. I think we had a very good dream on the economic front, but in other areas, the dreams were somewhat more, uh, as I said, sort of went through a more darker phase. Now, I think as far as uh, Bangladesh is concerned, I will really focus my remarks on two elements of the founding principles, uh, democracy and socialism. And, in fact, really take its trajectory to see what really were the driving forces which influenced this uh, narrative. As far as democracy was concerned, right from the beginning, we faced a number of structural problems, which in fact had a defining impact on the working of the democratic process. I'll run through them actually very quickly. Uh, one of the more basic problems arose from the fact that uh, 
over a period of almost uh, 25 years, going back to the late 1950s, there was only one dominant uh, democratic party in Bangladesh, the Awami League, uh, eventually led by Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. There were other parties and they had their moments of glory. But in any process of democratic mobilization and contestation, the Awami League remained unchallenged uh, in terms of its electability. And on the one occasion where they were given opportunity to express themselves in the 1970 election, they won an overwhelming majority winning, uh, I think, what is it, about 161 seats out of 163 available for contestation for the national parliament. And this process carried over in post-liberation Bangladesh, because you had one leader who was treated in a way as above the fray, a founding father of a nation. You had a political party which was overwhelmingly dominant. And within this contextual framework, you needed to bring, uh, construct a democratic process. Now, unless uh, we were not only a politically mobilized country, but we had also been uh, invested with all the qualities of sainthood. Uh, when you, in fact, uh, operate within the framework of such objective circumstances, the chances of this emerging as a strong, robust democratic culture is not great because es essential to that is that you have contestation and you have, in fact, uh, political processes which, in fact, are there to challenge you. In fact, what resistance there was uh, tended to manifest itself mostly at the underground level where people thought, particularly those from the left, who had actually performed rather feebly during the course of the liberation war itself, thought that they now had an unfinished uh, liberation struggle to in fact convert Bangladesh into some sort of a Maoist republic. And uh, Lots of arms were available to them to, in fact, uh, indulge their fantasies in this particular area. Over and above that, of course, you also had the sense of empowerment of the military elements who had actually fought the war and who felt that they had as much of a right to nation building as the elected representatives and therefore had a sense of unfulfilled or sense of disempowerment which they felt had to be recognized. So these were the difficult circumstances in which uh, the nation had to be built. And the byproduct of this was a concentration of power in the hands of Bangabandhu himself as the epitome of the nation building process. Uh, his uh, assassination within uh, three and a half years of the establishment of a founding of the nation state led to a complete transformation in the political culture and virtual undoing of the founding principles around which the nation was constructed. The objective conditions which flowed from that period were twofold. One, you had set in motion the tradition of the all-powerful executive president, and when the presidential system returned to parliamentary system, an all-powerful executive prime minister. Uh, and this power was in fact actually, uh, this, uh, this power was in fact actually 
enhanced at the expense of the weakening of the elective bodies or the legislatures. Now, part of the weakening of the legislature originated from the fact that the electoral process itself uh, was captured by the executive. And the early elections during the period where two generals, in fact, served as presidents, and the cantonment was the dom dominant political force in the country, ensured that the culture of the managed election would, in fact, actually ensure not only the uh, ruling party that you want, but even those who would constitute the opposition tended to get kind of predetermined, where the more acceptable elements of the opposition found themselves happily elected, and those who were less desirable invariably ended up defeated in the elections. In this was really the culture which really emerged, and in this particular period of time, uh, you had the undoing of a long period of democratic mobilization, which culminated in the emergence of an independent Bangladesh. When, in fact, uh, the political forces, first the Awami League, led by the daughter of Bangabandhu, uh, who took over the leadership of the party in the beginning of the 80s, and then, strangely enough, by the widow of the first general who, in fact, actually uh, moved to, in fact, undo the democratic process and expose us to a near of cantonment rule, uh, emerged actually as the leader of a party constructed in the cantonment, but in the period of the 1980s then reached fulfillment uh, as a civilian democratic party uh, based on street mobilization. And when they came together with the Awami League to overthrow the second military dictator, Ershad, we thought we had entered into a new democratic renaissance. Such was, in fact, the uh, uh, discourse on the street, a second liberation of Bangladesh, as we called it, uh, at the end of 1990. And the expectation essentially was that you would have a rebuilding of democracy, which had been languishing in the cantonment. More to the point, you now had, for the first time, two strong civilian democratic parties. In fact, the uh, BNP led by uh, Khalid Azia actually, much to everyone's surprise, won the election uh, in 1990, early 1991. And you had, in fact, a system of elections through a non-partisan caretaker system. I was, in fact, uh, a member of that caretaker government in, at, the, at the beginning of 1991, which carried out perhaps the first free and fair election held in post-liberation Bangladesh in the accepted sense of the term. And this essentially held out great promise. Uh, but unfortunately, everything which looks promising in Bangladesh uh, begins well, but doesn't always end in the same way. And so we began a process of undoing our greatest assets. One was converting a unique and well-functioning two-party system into a highly confrontational, almost tribalized society of Hutus and Tutsis, uh, who in fact actually entered into such fierce contestation that it made the parliamentary system itself dysfunctional. Secondly, of course, what was meant to be, again, a role model just not for Bangladesh, 
But in fact, for other uh, developing countries, uh, exp uh, getting their exposure to democracy, a uh, system of free and fair elections under non-party caretaker system, uh, we began picking at the edges of this system and we went through a process of trying to unmake this. Now, in spite of all these best efforts of unmaking, we managed to hold four free and fair elections in 1991, in 1996, in 1992001101111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111
and of the state actually constantly tilting the balance of channeling resources into the hands of a politically patronized elite was uh, increasingly again inegalitarian system and highly exploitative and unjust society in which most of the privileges of uh, <laughs> economic development and uh, de development and e uh, opportunities for development tended to be progressively concentrated. So today we now have a system in which you have done well economically, you've had good growth rates, you've had poverty reduction, but you have had the emergence of a highly elitist first world <coughs> uh, society emerging and a large, you may say, uh, disenfranchised uh, majority who have done well in an absolute sense, but in the face of extreme relative deprivation. And the worst aspect of this is it has led to the political capture of the system by an elite who as a consequence now completely dominate parliament. Virtually the entire parliament is formally declares itself as businessmen. And those who do not are in fact aspirant businessmen who given enough time in parliament will also emerge as businessmen. And who in fact have used their power to in fact lead to a highly unregulated system, which has led to massive debt defaults, bringing our banking system close to a state of collapse. At least uh, the uh, governmental institutions are now in a state of great endangerment. And uh, you have a system now in which commercial banks are using the deposits of uh, hundreds of millions of people to in fact channel loans to a privileged elite who in many cases do not pay back these loans. So this has become a process of inequitable capital accumulation sponsored by an unregulated system of governance. So the political story and the uh, philosophical outcome of this have been somewhat removed from the aspirations of the founding fathers. Of course, there are positive elements to the story which you will hear about in later sessions, but these are the elements which I leave you with and let Ronak uh, carry on the story as to what we might do to try to turn this around. Wonderful, thank you very much. So I'm gonna keep this going by asking about what new visions, what actors, what institutions might be required to, uh, to generate a more inclusive, a more just, more democratic and a more sustainable political order uh, in Bangladesh. Um, thank you, Gary. And again, again my apologies. I, at the, previously, uh, you were supposed to ask the question and I asked uh, Raymond to carry on. When we don't see your face, it is very difficult to uh, focus. Uh, anyway, to get back to your uh, uh, question. I will mostly focus on uh, the part of rebuilding uh, democracy, and I think Veman would want to talk about uh, rebuilding the principle of uh, socialism or how to rebuild the uh, economy. Uh, as you all know, that uh, rebuilding democracy is just not a challenge for uh, Bangladesh. Uh, 
uh, uh, where of course we had so many breakdowns and there has not been a continuity. But even uh, in established democracies, such as in our neighboring India, or even a very old democracy, uh, such as the United States, we have now seen uh, the major challenges of rebuilding uh, democracy. Uh, so for uh, Bangladesh, um, uh, my, uh, uh, the way I look at it is that we should start with uh, doing first the easier, more doable things uh, where we already have some uh, building blocks, for instance. So the first task I would say is to give media and civil society uh, complete uh, freedom. Uh, because if during the period of uh, democracy from 1991 uh, onwards, if one indicator was doing very well in Bangladesh and was always showing an upward trajectory was the voice indicator. And that was because of a, uh, the uh, role that uh, media was playing. We, for the first time, media started doing investigative journalism um, uh, and unearthing uh, all kinds of uh, corruption, malfeasance. Uh, so they were really trying to do their job. Similarly, for the first time, we had uh, uh, human rights and other uh, kinds of uh, civil society uh, organizations, again, making demands on the political system. So that they, these are, I find that here we have some traction. People are willing to take these uh, institutions, democratic institutions forward. So all of that needs to be done is if they, uh, the government has lots of um, different kinds of uh, acts to fetter this uh, uh, media. Uh, and I'm sure uh, you have recently heard about the Digital Security Act, I think, uh, uh, and uh, how uh, journalists could uh, be uh, kept in uh, prison and a lot of uh, this is not even, they cannot be given bails. So I think that if some of this, uh, if the, some of these laws are uh, withdrawn, then I think uh, even media and civil society uh, can play its uh, role. The second one, uh, uh, Raman talked a, a lot about uh, elections, free elections. Uh, it is not, we don't really need any technical knowledge uh, or support to organize free and fair elections because we indeed were able to organize four free and fair elections. But before we could organize a free and fair elections, I think we have to step back, our political actors have to step back from the winner takes all political culture. And uh, how that can be done, I think it is not for, uh, how that political will can be, uh, created, I think that the only political leaders, political activists, they would have to figure out. But unless we can determine, I have written about it many times, that unless we can ensure the fate of the losers, that 
if somebody wins, uh, loses an election, that uh, his, uh, he will or she will not face harassment, so the party and the workers, uh, the other losses, even loss of life. So I think the, that the losers will leave uh, well for another five years or four years to face another day and win an election. So I think that kind of an understanding has to be uh, brought about. So uh, I think that is a serious challenge. Uh, again, it is not simply in uh, Bangladesh. Uh, again, uh, Raman talked about our two parties uh, becoming so con confrontational, but I think I have lived in, uh, in the United States for many years, and I've seen increasingly how uh, even in the United States, the uh, the parties are almost getting tribalized uh, and their supporters. So I think this is a global problem. And I think this uh, whole electoral game, how we can do it in a, another, uh, create another kind of an atmosphere, I think that's a, another major challenge. Third, I think again, uh, the other challenge is again to establish rule of law. Again, it is fairly easy to say we need to do bring back independence of judiciary and let law be, uh, 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 be implemented in a non-partisan way. But I think uh, before we can do that, we have to see why is it that we are not able to improve on our rule of law situation. What is going on must be serving the interests of lot of powerful groups, and even people who are not powerful, they must be getting something out of this access patronage-based system. So unless we understand how the informal system works, uh, we uh, and who it is benefiting and how, we would not be able to change it. Uh, so I think that to bring back rule of law as we have on the books, we have to first see why it got eroded in the first place. Unless it is serving a lot of people, uh, the interest of loss of rule of law, it cannot be sustained for so long. So I think to rebuild that, we have to understand uh, the current system and who it is serving, how, and how we can provide the same kinds of efficient and effective service within a rule of law and really justice, you know, in that way. Law is, I find uh, that law is one thing and justice is another thing. Then the fourth, I think, is that uh, to rebuild uh, democratic institutions in this world uh, for the excluded, uh, we really, the, particularly in Bangladesh, you will hear in the later panels that that, that has been tremendously uh, rapid social development, um, economic uh, growth, uh, so that Bangladesh society is not what I was describing before in, uh, as it was in 71, uh, more or less an undifferentiated uh, peasant society. A lot of uh, the, what was then a budding middle class has become a very rich uh, class. There are middle classes and then lower middle classes that are coming up with the different kinds of uh, expectations. So, so to build new democratic institutions, we have to build stakes for these new people 
in uh, the new institutions. Um, the old style politics probably, or the old style institutions may not be good enough. And so for that, we need a lot of free discussions, new platforms. And unfortunately, what has happened that during 2006, seven, or and even before that, when uh, from 90s onwards, we had a lot of public discussion on political reforms, reforms of our electoral systems, uh, checks and balance systems, political parties. Uh, but unfortunately, those kinds of uh, discussions uh, have stopped. And, uh, and I think we need to start again those discussions uh, and uh, in a free, and, and for that, again, we need the free atmosphere so that people can express their opinion uh, so that we can rebuild. Uh, and my final point uh, on which I will close is on a uh, point of optimism. And that is that in Bangladesh, we are very used to seeing system breakdowns and then a lot of popular movements, again, renewals. So our story in some way is, is uh, beginning, then some breakdowns, again, renewals. But recently in 2018, uh, there was a very interesting street movement done mostly by high school students, 12 year to 14 year olds, kids when two of their, or a few of their uh, fellow students were killed in a road accident, then they uh, spontaneously, these kids were on the streets uh, trying to uh, not only protest, but what impressed me is that all of our uh, movements before were just protests, but these kids were showing an alternative way that they were not just asking the state to do things, but they were trying to line up all the stars, uh, all the cars. They were uh, checking the licenses. And then they were, uh, those uh, uh, people who didn't have licenses, then they were then uh, giving them to police. So to me, that if this 12 to 14 year olds not only could just say that, no, we don't want this, but show us, no, this can be done in that uh, in this way. And for three, four days in the middle of this torrential monsoon rain, hundreds and thousands of these 12, 14 year olds were on the street showing another way of doing things in Bangladesh. Then I for one uh, would not lose uh, hope on Bangladesh. And I keep uh, my faith on the next generation to keep our future in very good hands. Thank you very much. Ronak, that was wonderful. I wonder, Rafan, if you if you can share uh, your uh, thoughts on this. Well, of course, I'm not going to come out as a uh, 21st century Marx or Mao Zedong about how we are going to uh, reconstruct socialism in Bangladesh. In fact, it's not a word which occurs very frequently in public discourse these days. But I think what is very important is to put down a few thoughts on what can be a more just society and how far this can be realized within the realm of the feasible. So what we essentially have in mind is that uh, 
quite positive gains have, of course, been emerged. I mean, we have got uh, high growth capitalism with reduced poverty, uh, improvement in human development indicators, and in fact, an expanded safety net. But uh, we, of course, have a much more egalitarian and a much more unregulated society in, within which this growth has actually taken place. And particularly since this is the centenary year of Bongo Bondu, and we are also commemorating our 50th anniversary, we have to at least go through the motions of paying lip service to the notion of what can be done to create a more just and egalitarian society. So what are my thoughts on this? I think the most important thing is that the state must itself take on the responsibility of not tilting the balance in favor of the elite. Obviously, a lot of inequalities emerge through the dynamic of the market process. I don't want to go into the uh, detailed debates on how markets function. And the, but certainly, the role of the state is very important. And if you, in fact, have a state which over a period of 40 years has, in fact, actually been uh, permitting huge resources to be challenged into the hands of a privileged uh, uh, capital business elite and is making no real regulatory effort to, in fact, recover this uh, and is letting these uh, debts pile up so that a culture of default has, in fact, actually been uh, institutionalized within the system, then it means that a huge resource transfer has taken place, first of, from public banks. In fact, some have bankrupted, some are near bankruptcy. And then when you have left it to the private commercial banks, then from the depositors of commercial banks, who are there in their millions, but whose resources are being accumulated by a business elite who do not repay those loans. Now, that is neither just nor is it very efficient. And in fact, it is a grave threat to our move towards uh, becoming a more advanced uh, developing country, in fact, to move into the category of being a developed country. This has to be, I think, be addressed over here. We need to go through a process, therefore, for depoliticizing appointments into our institutions of both uh, uh, regulation and governance. Uh, most of them have been highly politicized. And for this particular reason, they are constrained from effectively discharging their responsibilities. I think uh, we have uh, Faisal Rahman here, who has actually worked in a regulatory institution. I hope he will have something to say on that, even though he always likes to be more positive. Uh, we then uh, have the problem of Again, tilting the balance through uh, budgetary dispensations, fiscal privileges, subsidies. If you, in fact, do a little balance sheet of, in fact, how much resources have been implicitly and explicitly directed to the elite through forms of tax concession and subsidies, and compare it to investments in social safety net programs and to, in fact, uh, lending programs to the SME sectors, you will see a huge imbalance in the way in which resources have, in fact, actually been dispensed. And the next area you need to address is the democratization of both education and healthcare. Uh, the educational system has now effectively become a bifurcated system of private education, 
uh, a lot of it given actually in the English language. And the public educational system, which has had at some point a tradition which has now been severely compromised, and which has essentially been the uh, refuge of the less resource privileged. And the resources going into the educational system, public educational system, are in fact a fraction of what is minimally acceptable by any society as an appropriate allocation for the sector. The healthcare system, which in fact was severely exposed uh, during the COVID crisis, pointed out the sorry state of public healthcare. And here again, you need to make massive investments, not just of resources, but of governance, so that people for both education and health access, in fact, are operating on a level playing field. Thirdly and fourthly, uh, some of the most hardworking naval people have been our working people, our farmers, the women who work in the garment industry, the women who are borrowing from the microfinance system. Now, what you really need is much more of institutional building in which workers get a much higher share in the value addition process which comes from their primary produce or in fact their labor. So whether we are talking about giving workers uh, ownership rights in the companies where they work, whether we are talking about giving farmers who have quadruple production but who don't anywhere near come near participating in the full value addition in the value chain, uh, how they can be in fact integrated into the value chain in the way that has been brought about by Amul in India, or by Seva in India, uh, as good examples of what could actually be done. Uh, then uh, finally, uh, our migrants. Our migrants, of course, are some of the heroes of the developmental success of Bangladesh who have given us uh, $42 billion in our foreign exchange reserves, but who in fact uh, go abroad under extremely adverse conditions, pay large sums of money, run huge risks. Now, after 40 years, this is simply not acceptable. You need to in fact create a set of institutions where you can collectively mobilize migrants, develop them, into better trained, better equipped uh, service exporting companies rather than individualized exploited individuals. And you need to then in fact invest in enhancing their skills, in being able to negotiate their contracts, and in being able to then convert some of their remittances into major assets of a productive nature, which can buy into some of the more dynamic sectors of the economy. These are some of the fantasies I would like to have about what could be done about building a more just society. I would like to think that they are not in the realm of imagination, but are in the realm of the feasible. Thank you. I love that. Um, the, the dream of a better society, but in the realm of the feasible. Um, thank you very much for that. I'm going to, um, let me make just one comment and then I wanna move. We have some wonderful questions from the audience and I'd like to move to those. Um, that some of this decline goes on in the context of a global recession in democracy that Larry Diamond um, at Stanford, a political scientist has warned that for about the past 14 years, there's been a global uh, sort of reverse wave against democratization. And in some ways Bangladesh or, you know, is 
is caught up in that global tide. It's a regional tide too. If you look at the undermining um, of democratic institutions and civil society next door in India. Um, but the, this trend, uh, and it's also one that includes just to be you know, critical to, you know, for Harvard Conference with some Americans here, that the United States obviously had a catastrophic experience um, under Donald Trump. And it's not like that just suddenly goes away because Joe Biden is president. There's a long way to go. Um, but this fear of an all-powerful executive prime minister, a prime minister who in some ways functions like a president, is one that really, I think, does really loom over the country um, with problems, uh, you know, from arbitrary arrests of critics of the government. Um, the Digital Security Act, which was mentioned um, as uh, stifling free expression uh, and independent media. There's also problems of um, a, a security state that is feeling pretty, you know, clearly pretty impervious. Uh, the UN is quite concerned about uh, allegations of torture, uh, extrajudicial killings, um, and so and disappearances. Um, and the security forces in the army seem to feel that they can get away with an awful lot. Um, right now, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, as I'm sure many people will know, uh, is asking for an investigation uh, into a specific event, the, the death in pretrial detention of a writer, Mushtaq Ahmed, um, but also into the Digital Security Act itself. Um, so this is part of a global pattern, but it's also attracted... I think unwelcome attention from the outside world. We have a ton of excellent questions um, and I'm going to throw out um, a couple of them um, just uh, so that we, we have a, a hard stop at 825. I don't wanna make sure that many of these get covered. Um, one question uh, from uh, Salim Rehan, who's a uh, professor of economics at the great Dhaka University, um, who uh, asks about uh, crony capitalism and elite state capture and wonders, this is more directed to Rehman, uh, what kind of political process you would suggest to counter crony capitalism and elite state capture. Uh, one question directed uh, specifically uh, for Ronak, is about how this winner-take-all culture has developed uh, in Bangladesh. Is this just because of politicians who have sort of played too rough? Or do you think uh, Bangladeshi society as a whole has also contributed to it? Um, let's start with those. And if we can um, try and go through those uh, relatively quickly, because there are, there are lots of great questions um, still waiting. Many thanks. Maybe we could start. Rahman, do you want to go first and then Ronak? Oh, well, uh, Salim and I have participated in many discussions attempting unsatisfactorily to answer his question. I think the problem obviously is that the government itself has to decide whether uh, their long-term interests of moving the country towards uh, form of more advanced development is best served by a system of crony capitalism in which privileged people are given non-market, non-competitive access to resources is going to serve their needs better. 
My suspicion is that if they, depending on which particular interests they wish to promote, if they have a longer term interest about how they want the economy to look, let alone how its politics to look, it would be their to their advantage to, in fact, at least rein in the crony element of the capitalist system and to see, in fact, that if you want to practice capitalism, then at least you do it within some agreed uh, rules of the game where the market, competitive market system can effectively operate. But of course, if you want to address the politics of it, then you need to move into a situation in which you democratize access to uh, electoral office. I mean, the big problem now is that participation in the electoral system has become a business investment. And the bigger the investments you make, the more likely you are to get in. And you are then seeing uh, your political presence in the institution as a process of furthering your longer term business interests. Now you have to break away from that system and get to a point where you democratize the electoral process through perhaps a state funding of elections uh, where money itself is not the major variable, where you in fact have an oversight over the uh, financing and use of funds in the election process and where political parties are themselves then persuaded to give uh, nominations, both to a larger constituency of women as also to a larger constituency of working people. In fact, ironically, the most dynamic segments of the society, the farmers, the small and medium entrepreneurs, even some of your most competitive non-defaulting uh, businessmen, uh, your migrants, very few of them have any electoral representation. So there is a huge uh, mismatch uh, between the dynamic entrepreneurial class on the one hand and the, represent the voice they have in parliament. So this, is a pro this, uh, this uh, disconnect has to be reconnected and the system of power must be equated with those who in fact contribute to the dynamic of the economy. I think that would be my response. But how to bring this about? Uh, I am looking for my magic wand. Uh, Ronak, please, okay, while you search you. for your magic wand. Um, thank you. First of all, uh, Gary, let me say that many of us here in Bangladesh also share the same concerns that you raised in uh, your comment about uh, uh, all the things that are happening here, including all the violations of uh, human rights. Uh, and, uh, and this is why the, the first uh, point that I made earlier is that for media and civil society and human rights activists, at least if they do not face all the obstacles, then people would get to hear about what is going on. Uh, so I think that is in the realm of the possible to withdraw all of these laws, for instance. Uh, to answer the question about the winner-take-all um, uh, uh, culture here, uh, this has ha happened gradually over the years. This is the flip side of the comment or, uh, of the coin of our economic success story. For instance, in the 70s, um, the governments uh, really didn't have that much uh, uh, 
money to if you are uh, in the budget was small so if you are controlling the state or if you are in government you do not have that much patronage to uh, give but the mode that we are uh, growing now so if you control uh, the state then uh, you have so much more um, uh, money to give to your supporters uh, so that the pool of the patronage uh, system that becomes much uh, larger uh, and that is how over the years the this is uh, taking uh, place initially up from 1991 up to say 2006 as i uh, said before every time there was an election what we found is that uh, incumbents were always losing the election uh, so at least people which to me was an indication that people really don't like this system uh, of uh, so much uh, uh, a system of rule by patronage and, and uh, corruption. Uh, so that the only thing they could do is vote the incumbents out. So for at least that system, even though it didn't take the winner takes all uh, situation, then at least it could rotate and limit the situation. My current sort of worries now is not so much the winner takes it all but what happens to the loser because now that you know nobody wants to be a loser even for four or five years and they, so i think that we really need to get back into a situation to protect the losers and uh, then somehow we can go back to this rotation, even if we cannot fundamentally change. Uh, and, and then I think over the years, we can probably tackle the winner-takes-all situation. Thank you. Um, thank you. That's wonderful. I'm going to throw out uh, three more questions. I'm trying to pick ones that sort of hit at different issues, because I'm mindful that we only have 10 minutes left. Um, so first from Sanjan Haq, who asks whether or not there are parallels between Bangladesh's experience and other uh, countries uh, in Asia or beyond, and in particular about the sort of Faustian pact uh, with businesses, whether that's equivalent to similar deals struck in Japan and Korea um, uh, during their during their period. I'm thinking of, I'm, there I'm obviously thinking of the work of the late Ezra Vogel, um, who, uh, who we miss and who we mourn. Um, uh, Chris Kenna uh, asks about the success of some uh, famous NGOs um, in Bangladesh, including uh, Grameen Bank, BRAC, and others, uh, and wondering if uh, any of you see hopes for further strengthening such grassroots NGOs. Um, and our own Tarun uh, Tarnkhana asks, what are the incentives for the elite to participate in the remaking of a system that rebalances things in favor of the disenfranchised? Why would they want to play ball with that? What possible incentive would they have um, to do that? So let me, and those, that will probably bring us to 825. So let's, um, uh, yeah, let, we'll probably wrap with those. Thanks. 
Uh, maybe Ronak, do you want to go first? Uh, no, let Rahman go first to yeah. the uh, parallel of Bangladesh and other, uh, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. He gets well, the best bargain. Uh, we went through uh, uh, that phase, not just, uh, I think, uh, Japan and Korea, but once upon a time, even uh, Soharto's Indonesia and uh, Thailand and others were also seen as part of that Faustian uh, East-Southeast Asian uh, uh, miracle story. Uh, I think the problem with all those is that uh, the Faustian story eventually uh, ended up in Korea with at least three presidents in jail. In fact, I think the latest lady is also heading that way. And uh, in other cases, of course, there was the system was overturned. Uh, so it, as a system, it has very sort of, I mean, uh, limited life. We are now talking about a country which is 50 years old. And so there's really no reason at all why you want to uh, make a pact with these people. And the people with whom you're making a pact are really not the Samsungs and the Daiwus uh, with whom you are making pacts. They are the less uh, efficient uh, components even of the capitalist order as it is practiced over here. So essentially, you're doing this at the expense of a highly dynamic element, not just within the entrepreneurial community itself, but also within the other components of the Bangladesh miracle, the uh, uh, women, the workers, the farmers, all of them. And in fact, it is in Bangladesh's interest from that point of view that you bring together both an element of justice as well as an element of efficiency, where the growth narrative as also the justice narrative, in fact, actually go hand in hand. This is a major liability. And in fact, the political consequences are going to be much more on the lines of the fate of the Park Chung-hees and the Sohartos, rather than the more sort of smooth evolution of the Japanese Singapore narrative over here. And it is not even in the interest of the present ruling elite, and certainly not of the prime minister herself, that a system of this nature should in fact prevail because you want a system which can be bequeathed to successors and which is a working system. And this is really not a sustainable order. Uh, okay. Um, let me answer the question on uh, the, uh, uh, the future of the uh, NGOs. Um, I think there is still a lot of scope for NGO uh, activities. Uh, see, the main successes such as Bragg uh, and Grameen and others, Grameen is not actually an NGO, but it was that they were mostly service delivery NGOs. And um, then they worked also, there was a very good gov uh, government and NGO partnership that worked very well. And they uh, and the distinguishing feature is that they brought many of their services up to scale at a national uh, level. So Bangladesh uh, still needs, even in the health sector, I think that these are there are a lot of underserved areas, underserved issues. So uh, if 
there is a, again a government and NGO partnership in identifying areas and also the, the NGO uh, entrepreneurs like we had with our pioneers like Abed and Yunus and Zafrullah and others. Then I think there is a lot of scope. We, we already miss NGOs, for instance, during the COVID crisis that at the community level to mobilize people, even raising awareness. These are the things NGOs do best. So I can see a lot of scope for NGO activity. And just in one minute to answer the other question, and maybe Reman may want to talk about this elite, what is in it for elites uh, to get uh, into any rebuilding of democratic institutions. Uh, elites and for that matter, every class, everybody works in their enlightened self-interest. And if elites were then to see that even to protect their own interests, it is better to do some, uh, to get on board uh, with some reforms, uh, then I think they will do it. But it is a question of how much pressure can the excluded uh, build and uh, so that they can not only put pressure on the elite. The main danger is always uh, co-optation, for instance, and manipulation, and how they can protect and then promote their own uh, interest and agenda. I think that is always a critical challenge. Raymond, you want to say Well, even within elites, I mean, there are contradictions. It isn't that every part of the elite is a sort of defaulter. Every part of the elite is participating in crony deals. Uh, they are large and highly competent and competitive component of the elite uh, who would provide a much better service and the government would be much better benefited by in fact actually operating within a competitive system where these people have a chance correspondingly at other levels these are all highly productive components of the Bangladesh story, and it is in the interest of the government to, in fact, elevate them and to give them a much better chance. Now, if you are in that small segment of the elite, which is exclusively getting your benefits, depending on the size of your default, and also is, in fact, managing this by uh, getting deals only on the basis of being able to actually get yourself uh, opportunity to inflate the cost of the project and get that. That is uh, something which you will resist, but uh, you are really not a majority, even in your own community. And that is my only hope that at the end, both the state interest and the class interest will in fact coalesce to in fact address the less, uh, you may say the sort of less participative and the less competent elements who are in fact getting the benefits today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so we, against all expectation, um, I'm, I'm delighted to say that we actually end on time, which is something I have never done for any panel um, that I have ever been on or ever moderated. So this is a personal first for me. Um, I wanted to say, it just falls to me to say many, many thanks uh, to, uh, to Ranak and Rahman for these wonderful presentations um, from which I think we've learned so much and we've heard so much wisdom. Um, and but I think a wonderful blend of realism um, and still um, 
some hope mixed with all of that wisdom and a hard-won experience. So my sincere thanks to you both. That was really wonderful. I love that. Um, I want to apologize to those of you. We had wonderful questions. Um, my thanks to those of you who asked. My apologies to those of you who we didn't get to. I'm sure that these themes will be revisited throughout the course um, of, uh, of the conference. Um, and many thanks to, uh, to the Middle Center and to, to Marty Chen, who did such a wonderful job uh, bringing us all together and structuring this so that it worked well, uh, and to Tarun uh, for his leadership um, with all of this, uh, uh, and to Chelsea and Megan um, and to everyone. Many thanks. We're going to now have a break, uh, and we will reconvene with panel two promptly um, at 8.30. Many thanks to everyone. Thank you from our Thank side you. to all of you for a well thought out and a very promising event. We're looking to log into the rest of it. Thank you.